2: Take the tissues out of the Kleenex box for the finale of the Sprint and T-Mobile wedding series. It seems as though uh, they have proposed to each other and said, I do. The question now, though, is regulators, will they step in and put the kibosh on this match made in mm, heaven? I don't know if I would call it that. John Butler joins us now, senior telecom services and equipment analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. John, uh, so how likely do you think it is that this deal goes through?
3: You know, our regulatory analysts are saying it's unlikely to get approved. Really? Yes. And their argument is the DOJ looks at the HHI index. In English, what they look at is the aggregation of share of the combined company. So if you look at Sprint and T-Mobile combined, they're going to be larger than AT&T in terms of subscriber count a little bit smaller than Verizon, but they're instantly overnight going to be on par with their size. And, you know, so we'll go from a market of four carriers, two big ones, two smaller ones, to suddenly a market of three large carriers. And the question for them becomes, you know, is this gonna help or hurt consumers? And with T-Mobile having been the disruptor over the past five years, it's hard to argue that that's been bad for consumers. It's put a lot of pressure on wireless pricing, but from our standpoint as consumers, we're paying a lot less for wireless, thanks in part to T-Mobile. So when it comes to approving a deal like this, if they're looking at it from that standpoint, it's tough to approve. Um, I think the flip side, the other argument that I would put forward is, pardon me, if you look forward three to five years, We're now, carriers are now investing in these new 5G networks, pardon me, and you need really deep pockets to do that, to get where you need to be with a true nationwide 5G network. And I think T-Mobile and Sprint really need to look at combining resources to get where they need to be to make that kind of investment and truly make it on par with AT&T and Verizon. So the question I think for the regulators is, Where do you want to be in three to five years? Do you want to be sitting there with a duopoly, with having AT&T and Verizon, uh, the only two carriers that can make that kind of investment, but maybe have lower wireless prices for consumers? Or the flip side is, do you want to give uh, Sprint and and, uh, T-Mobile a shot at, at getting the kind of scale they need to make that investment in 5G? And then three to five years down the line, have a three horse race instead of two.
1: You mentioned HHI, Herfindahl-Hirschman right Right. index. This is an index that measures market concentration. Right. According to the current subscriber numbers, AT and T would end up being number three if there was a combination of Sprint and. T-Mobile, correct? Right. Not not a
3: distant three to be correct. Clear. I mean we're like they,
1: ninety-three, ninety-five million. Right. The combined exactly. operation would be a hundred million, and uh Verizon has like hundred and sixteen, somewhere right. around there.
3: So all very closely aligned on subscriber counts.
1: Okay. Uh the deal for uh combination, T-Mobile Sprint. Who is this deal? good for. Is it good for Mashiyoshi-san? Because he's now seeding control if the deal goes through.
3: Well it's good for him because Sprint has not exactly been a winning investment for him. And I don't remember his entry point, but he's been looking to get he's been looking to monetize Sprint for a long, long time. And this to me, from his perspective, I think this is a good solution because the resulting carrier would be would gain scale overnight. And frankly, that's what's killing Sprint. They don't have any, they don't have scale in a scale business.
2: Okay. So let's go back to the regulatory question just very quickly. Sprint, what happens to this company if this merger does not go through?
3: You know, Sprint either gets taken out by Comcast or one of the cable operators, or frankly, they continue to suffer. I mean, I don't-
2: yeah, What the in, when is like the rubber meet the road where they cannot keep going?
3: Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know the strategy uh, X getting taken out. If the deal gets kiboshed, they're going to have to build their way out of the problem. So it's going to take a lot of money on the part of Ma- Ma- Masasan at SoftBank and on the part of Sprint to really upgrade all these. I would start with the major markets if I were Sprint, New York, LA, Boston, But they
2: already Chicago. have about $50 billion of debt.
3: Right. This so is this is
2: a difficult situation yeah, for them. Yeah, they're
3: in deep. They're in deep. So I for them there's I look at it from Sprint's perspective and think there's no way out. You know, they really need to combine with someone else to gain scale and gain the financial resources to make this leap from where we are today with 4G to 5G because networks evolve, right? It wasn't that long ago that we were at 3G, which supported voice and email. And then we went to 4G, which supported voice email and web browsing and video. Now 5G is gonna support all that and also this concept of connected devices. So.
1: John Butler, thank you Yep, for keeping us connected. Nice Our Senior Telecom here. Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow John Butler on Twitter. I suggest you do so at John underscore Butler 25. That's John underscore Butler 25.
2: In this mega merger Monday, Marathon Petroleum agreed to buy rival oil refiner Endeavor for $23.3 billion. This tie-up could create the largest independent fuel maker in the U.S. Andover shares up more than 15 percent. Marathon's down about 5 percent. Here to talk about how this rearranges the oil landscape in the United States is Andy Lipow, president of Lipow Oil Associates in Houston. Andy, thank you so much for being with us. So, you know, how big of a deal is this deal?
4: Well, this is a very big deal, given that the combined marathon and endeavor entity will now control about 15 percent of the nation's refining capacity. And their footprint is going to be geographically widespread across the entire nation.
1: And the Maybe just tell people about the difference between upstream and downstream operations. Because what? Marathon-branded gasoline, they currently sell it in about 20 states. It's got that Speedway unit. That's the second largest convenience store chain. And it's also got a master limited partnership with about 11,000 miles of crude oil and uh, light product pipelines.
4: Sure. Well, when we think about upstream operations, we're really thinking about getting crude oil and natural gas out of the ground. And once that crude oil and natural gas is out of the ground, we think about the midstream operations, which is getting it to the refinery. After the refinery, which we consider as downstream operations, the gasoline and diesel is sold through the retail outlets and ultimately to the consumer. So in this particular case, as you mentioned, Marathon has about 2,700 Speedway stores and about 5,600 Marathon-branded uh, locations throughout the, the eastern part of the U.S. Meanwhile, Endeavor uses a whole variety of branded stations. People may not realize they're selling under the Mobile, Shell, Arco, and Exxon flags in the West Coast.
2: So. I'm trying to understand who loses the most from this tie-up.
4: Well, I think a lot of the consumer advocates are going to be saying that given uh, Marathon's control of 15 percent of the refining capacity in the nation, that the consumer could ultimately be uh, the loser by paying higher retail gasoline prices. Do you agree with that assessment? I don't think so, because still Marathon and Tesoro have to compete in a variety of markets. Uh, the price of gasoline is set on a very competitive basis. The market looks at the futures prices as well as the wholesale prices, whether it's in New York or Houston or Los Angeles. And we're, of course, faced with importing gasoline into the East Coast while exporting it off the Gulf Coast. So the U.S. is quite intertwined with the rest of the oil market.
1: Andy, can you put some margin uh, numbers together for us so that we understand which aspects of the actual stream, upstream to downstream, what are the most profitable parts of that entire chain?
4: Well, I haven't looked particularly at a marathon or Endeavor's numbers, but... On the refining side, refining margins continue to improve here in 2018, and I think one reason that Marathon was looking at this acquisition, because going ahead in 2019 and 2020, there's actually new environmental regulations that are going to impact on the refining margin, actually to the upside. On the retail side, retail is very, very competitive. Uh, The Store owner operators really want very competitive gasoline to get the consumer inside the store to buy the variety of higher margin goods.
2: So I'm trying to understand whether this deal could have happened if uh, we did see oil prices continue to decline. I mean, in other words, has the stability in oil prices basically allowed this to happen?
4: Well, I think so. And not only that, the fact that oil prices are lower than we saw a couple of years ago has made it easier because neither Marathon nor Endeavor have much exposure to the price of, of getting crude oil and natural gas out of the ground. These companies are really not production companies in the sense of Exxon, Shell, or BP. So they are really focused on refining margin. Andy,
1: what as aspect of the, of the energy complex, do you think people are not paying attention to enough and that they, they can still make money? Well,
4: I think, of course, this is going to get people uh, focused on refining, and in addition, whether other smaller refining companies in the U.S, such as Holly Frontier or CVR Energy, are likely to be gobbled up by a bigger uh, competitor. In addition, now I think the industry is going to look at PBF Energy, Phillips 66, Valero, to see if they're going to uh, participate in further consolidation.
2: And just as far as production goes, what's your estimate for shale production going forward? Do you think that it's going to keep ramping up, or do you think that, uh, that the, the price supply-demand dynamic is going to keep things in
0: check?
4: Well, given that uh, WTI prices are at $68, and I actually expect them to rise during the course of this year as world oil demand continues to improve, I expect that shale production is going to continue to rise. I believe in Texas we're right at about 3.1 million barrels a day out of the Permian Basin. The market expects that to continue to grow. The biggest impediment, actually, to shale oil production is the fact that all the pipelines leaving the Permian Basin to get that material to the Texas Gulf Coast are full. And there's really no significant relief in sight from that front until the second half of 2019.
1: I want to thank you very much for being with us, Uh, Andy Lippo of uh, Lippo Oil Associates.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate?
1: Should we expect an increase in interest rates in June? Let's find out from Jim Vogel, interest rate strategist for FTN Financial, joining us from Memphis. Jim, always a pleasure. Tell us about your outlook for interest rates and how that would affect the value of the U.S. dollar versus our trading partners. Good morning.
5: Well, we certainly do look for a Fed increase at the June meeting. And then, of course, the bond market and the currency markets will be very interested in what they have to say on Wednesday.
2: All right. So right now we have a growing number of people who are thinking, huh, the Fed may have ammunition to go four times this year. We got the PCE data out showing that their preferred target for inflation has hit that 2% magical mark. Do you agree four times this year? And if so, what are the implications?
5: Well, certainly the market agrees. Um, The Fed was out talking well before the blackout period, and the market is pretty much priced in that fourth rate hike to 250, either in December or January, which is ultimately the same thing. Uh, We think there's the chance that the Fed stays cautious and pauses and only does three rate hikes this year.
1: Well, Jim, I wonder if you could expand a little bit about the value of the U.S. dollar. The dollar has shown strength against all major currencies. We're at 120 versus the euro. The pound sterling slipping to 137. Also got Japanese yen at 109. Do you believe that the dollar will continue to strengthen if indeed the trajectory of interest rates is as you describe it?
5: Uh, Yes, because we're going to have the dollar continue to go up for about the next six weeks or so. The uh, it, the assumption coming into this year was that Europe in particular would uh, move ahead quite quickly and need rate increases, particularly in the UK, uh, this coming month. And now, with the first quarter numbers in hand in Europe, it doesn't look like that's going to happen.
2: So, one thing that I'm struggling with is if the Fed raises rates four times, if the dollar strengthens, I'm trying to understand the next steps next year because we are seeing the yield curve flatten. And, uh, you know, yes, inflation is getting up there, but it's hard to see how that could be sustained. So what are you thinking on the longer end of the curve? Where do you see, you know, 10 and 30 year yields going by the end of this year?
5: there's room for a good, a bit more increase because if the Fed does increase four times, uh, that would imply a certain hawkish approach all the way out to 2020. In other words, they've got to increase now so that they don't have to increase out uh, further. So when we get to 250 on Fed funds, you will see um, threes perhaps go up to three and a quarter, three and three eighths for a while uh, until people can determine that the Fed is sort of um, done with its, its ultra hawkish view that it has to move now.
2: So do you agree with all of the traders who have boosted bearish bets on U.S. government debt to the highest levels on record when you look <laughs> at CFTC data? I mean, are they going to be in the money?
5: Uh, no, because that was based. No, because that was based on momentum from mid-April when the Fed was talking what it was going to do in June. Now that we're at the May meeting this week with a preview of what they will do in June, those traders are going to have to reassess that the speed with which uh, that the ten-year accelerates past three percent.
1: Jim, can I turn your attention now to what's going on in Europe and the European Central Bank? Do you believe that European economies can sustain a rising rate environment?
5: Well, it is a matter of belief whether that's the case, because we've had rates there uh, low for three to four years now, and the short answer is no. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult, because as soon as they start raising rates, the euro is going to not be at 120, it's going to be at 135 or 140, and that's going to hurt exports again. So Europe needs uh, to move well into the second half of 2019 to get the kind of growth momentum that can withstand higher currency values.
2: Well, but so in the meantime, as the ECB stands pat, there was data just out today uh, saying the European Central Bank held 151 euros of a billion euros, excuse me, of corporate Mm -hmm. bonds as of April 27th. And I'm just wondering, how much is this what's driving U.S. debt markets right now, sending European investors over to the U.S. credit markets because they can't find anything to buy in Europe?
5: so far, that has not really happened. I mean, we've really Really? on the government. Well, no, so far on the government side, uh, we've had um, a good bit of, um, we've had widening uh, adjusted for inflation expectations. So we're not seeing that migration from Europe into the U.S. just yet. What you did see earlier in the year was U.S. corporations issuing in euro to take advantage of that stronger dollar. So you've got to look both also at supply, which right now people will thing continue to grow in Europe to take advantage of that growing ECB position.
1: As far as uh, the supply of treasuries is uh, available in the United States, what do you project for uh, the tenure? for example? Uh, Do you think that 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 3% level is as critical as many have described? Uh, no, it's not quite critical because right
5: now we're what we've watched more closely is the fact that real interest rates on 10 years right now are near or at cycle highs. And with that in, in place, it's far more important to watch what inflation expectations do over the next two months than to necessarily watch Treasury supply announcement either this week or in August with regards to whether we stay above 3%. Wait,
2: wait. so I want to make sure I understand this because this is important and it kind of goes to the crux of a debate uh, that a lot of people have been having. What's driving Treasury yields right now? Is it the fact that the U.S. government is having record auctions of of debt uh, week after week, or is it the prospect of higher inflation? You're saying it's inflation, and yet if you look at break-even contracts, you're not seeing that inflation being priced in. So can you just sort of go into a little bit more detail? What gives you the confidence that really it's inflation expectations driving Treasury yields? Well, we're,
5: we've, we're looking at CPI derivatives, which are generally more uh, sensitive than the break-even contracts, and we saw a big increase in inflation expectations in that measure once the Fed started talking very confidently about inflation going above their 2% target a couple of weeks ago. So, roughly 10 basis points out of the 15 was that increase in inflation expectations out there at the long end. Okay. Some of the break-even contracts get a little distorted, because of the introduction to the new five year tips.
2: Interesting. And so, the other thing, if it is inflation, how much is connected to higher oil prices, and how much is there an expectation that people are going to get paid more and there's going to be this virtual cycle of growth?
5: Mm-hmm. About half of it is the idea that inflation is naturally going to grow because the overall economy around the world is going to improve. Some of that is in wages. Some of that is in natural resources. But so far, we've resisted the idea that higher oil necessarily translates into um, higher, longer-term inflation, simply because some of the oil cost pressures have been related uh, to supply interruptions and geopolitical tensions.
2: Jim Vogel. Always a pleasure hearing your insights. Thank you so much for joining us. Jim Vogel, interest rate strategist at FTN Financial, one of the most accurate interest rate strategists out there, definitely someone to listen to. The deadline is quickly approaching for the U.S. to decide who gets excluded from tariffs on steel and aluminum. But trade wars and concerns of that are heating up. Here to talk about the effect on U.S. infrastructure as well as that globally is Walter Kemsies, economist and chief strategist for U.S. ports, airports and global infrastructure at Jones Lang LaSalle in Chicago. He also is on a committee that advises the Secretary of Commerce in the U.S. that focuses on supply Chain competitiveness. Walter, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with this concept right now uh, that what we're seeing with trade could potentially harm our supply chain and uh, could potentially lead to uh, lower economic growth as the U.S. takes on an increasingly isolationist stance. What's your position on that?
6: Well, basically, we've spent the last 50, 60 years trying to globalize production. And I think by looking across the supply chains of many industries, we've clearly globalized production. And that helped create a big global middle class. You know, at this point, somewhere is between three and four billion people. But uh, the U.S. isn't getting access to that. So a big push behind these, this, these trade negotiations is to globalize consumption in line with the globalization
1: of production. All right. So what do you recommend based on your experience of these negotiations? What do you recommend reset the thinking or the psychology behind this, because it sounds as if there's going to have to be a lot of give and take, preferably a lot of give, at least on part of the United States, on the part of our, our foreign trading partners.
6: Well, let's break this into three parts. The first is the trade negotiators on the other side of the table. They realize that having the world's biggest economy, running a trade deficit bigger than the GDP of the bottom 150 countries on the planet, is not sustainable. Eventually this ends very badly, and uh, but they need ammunition to go home and tell their constituents that things are gonna change. So I think a lot of what we're seeing in the negotiations and in the, in the verbiage that's being used is messages that the other negotiators can take home. But what I think this means to us is two things. One is um, we're not prepared for the big wave of exports that could come out of this. The US has some industries where it has a comparative and a competitive advantage. They are a little stymied. And the big risk from all of this could be that we get the trade agreements we want, the US sectors, agriculture, capital goods, energy, they get access to the world markets and we don't have the infrastructure to support it.
2: Okay, I I want you to elaborate that, uh, but I want to just go back a little bit because it seems like you're talking about China, most of all, when you say we can't get access to that middle class, is that correct?
6: Yes, mostly China. So
2: it's mostly China, and yet we're angering right now a lot of European allies saying that this is not acceptable, that this is like the U.S. holding a gun to our head when we're talking about aluminum and steel tariffs. And a lot of companies are basically paying these tariffs and hoping that the U.S. will reimburse them once they change their mind. I'm just wondering, do you think that this is the best way we could be going about trying to open up trade in China?
6: Well, the, the previous attempt was to go via the TPP, which was addressing issues such as corruption and intellectual property theft and things of that nature. But it's very slow going. It goes through the World Trade Organization's legal system. And as we've seen just between the interactions of big airplane makers, that sometimes a case can take seven to 14 years to get resolved. So uh, if you want a little faster action, and quite frankly, I think the US needs a lot faster action, um, you ditch the, the NICE approach and you put your hands in the guns and start
1: shooting. Let's follow up on what you described about the infrastructure in the United States in order to meet the potential success that we would see in trade agreements. What needs to happen there?
6: Well, let's start with the waterways. I mean we built the Mississippi Waterway system, <clears throat> which goes from you know uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, down the Missouri River, you've got the Ohio, the Chicago rivers that feed into the Mississippi and then out to the Gulf. It's a, it's an engineering marvel. This thing was a great resource, but we had to harness it with locks and dams and bridges and all these things were built. Some of most of it way back during the great depression. And that's well over 75 years ago. And infrastructure has, is designed for 50 years. You might eke another 25 years out of it, but once it's done, you got to replace it just like the bridges here in New York. So, um, that carries the bulk of our agriculture, our chemicals, our petrochemicals, our energy products. They all go up and down that river and that river is um, is becoming a bottleneck.
2: Well, we had heard uh, when President Trump was campaigning and soon after he was elected about an infrastructure spending plan. We've heard less about it, and there are pretty few details. Can you give us a sense of what you know about it and whether it will be sufficient to at least begin some of these projects that are crucial to the, uh, to the nation? I think
6: the concept is good, but I think it's a little too focused on, on, on public-private partnerships. I mean, there are many other means of financing infrastructure, if you look at Europe, before the, uh, during the Maastricht Treaty period when France, Germany, and Italy, all of them tried to converge into the Euro, some of them had a very high debt-to-GDP ratio. One of the things they did was they had a fire sale on public infrastructure. All those telecom IPOs, Autostrada in Italy, Vienna Flughafen, you know, and uh, the, the Vienna Airport. Um, I, I, was in, I was living in Europe at the time and, you know, in part of that big wave of, of privatizations. So we have a lot of infrastructure that generates cash that could be IPO'd. And in a certain sense, it might attract
1: more public support rather than less. To focus on the river, the Mississippi River, is there one thing that you would recommend that you would like to get across to listeners and to lawmakers and to those in private industry, something that could have an actual uh, timeline so that it isn't just a theory, it's something that can actually be put in place?
6: Yeah, the word is sunset. We would like to charge user fees, users are willing to pay a fee provided the fee is going towards what it's supposed to. But once you've built it and you've paid for it, the fee should go away. And the problem with a lot of our infrastructure fees and proposals is that they're oriented towards you know, staying on you know, infinitum. And if you agree to sunset this, maybe we use bond covenants, but you shut it down, sh- eliminate the payments the day it's complete, I think you get a lot of support from U.S. manufacturers and
1: retailers. And is there a a time frame in your mind? I mean, when does this have to happen before something terrible happens to the Mississippi River?
6: Yeah, absolutely. We've
1: already had a few
6: incidents where, and and if if you look at the Army Corps, who's in charge of maintaining the Mississippi waterway, ever since uh, the turn of the century, so almost 18 years now, every year the Army Corps' budget is cut. And, and if you add that up over 18 years, what they're trying to do now is keep as many fingers as they can in the holes in the dike, but there's, there are more holes than there are fingers. Look at the Great Lakes. The ports haven't been dredged. The, uh, we're looking at 18 million cubic yards of dredge maintenance that should have been done. It's a backlog. You look at the Mississippi, we've got locks that don't work. Um, yeah, it's time to fund these guys.
1: Thank you very much. Walter Kempsey's Economist, Chief Strategist, U.S. Ports, Airports, Global Infrastructure Group for Jones Lang LaSalle.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like?